like to welcome you to Prairie View Christian Church. We're glad that you're here with us this morning. Now, so far, the Gospel of Luke that we've been going through for weeks now has been quite the story. In this story, there have been announcements from angels. There have been prophecies fulfilled, miraculous births. But even with things, amazing healings and even resurrections from the dead. But even with those incredible events, we still haven't reached the true climax of the story. Now, remember way back to Luke chapter one, the first few verses of Luke, really, a guy named Theophilus. Remember him, Theophilus? Well, Theophilus is the man that Luke is writing this gospel for. The one who was looking for certainty concerning all the things that he had been taught about Jesus. Well, poor Theophilus has been patiently waiting this whole time for the parts of the story that he's probably heard the most about. And today, that's the part of the story that we're starting to get to. Because today marks the end of that long, winding journey when Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. Because today, in Luke chapter 19, we arrive at the destination. We pick up with Jesus' entry to the city, celebrated more formally next week as Palm Sunday. Jesus enters Jerusalem riding on a colt. And he receives no less than a royal welcome. There are cloaks and palm branches lining the streets. People sing and praise God. You can almost picture it like a parade with confetti and balloons. And all the people in the crowds are filled with wonder and anticipation of what Jesus is going to do next now that he's in town. But not everyone celebrates Jesus' arrival. In fact, once the crowds head home, once the songs go silent, once the Jerusalem Street Department comes to pick up all the palm branches, well, from that time forward, things get really, really dark in the Gospel of Luke. We pick up today in Luke chapter 19, verse 28. If you're using a chair Bible, this will be found on page 606. And if you don't own a Bible, feel free to take one home with you as you leave. But before we do any reading... Let's pray together. Father, we're grateful for this morning. I'm sure a lot of us are tired. I'm sure a lot of us are adjusting to a new schedule and and the time change. But thank you that this morning uh, we can come here, we can drink coffee, uh, we can have conversations, we can laugh, we can catch up. uh, But most importantly, we can spend time in your word. Uh, We can be reminded of your son Jesus' death and resurrection, we can be reminded of what it is that you've done for us in your grace. So, Father, I pray that as we read this story this morning, uh, a story that many of us presumably have heard lots of times, um, I pray that it wouldn't lose its power. I pray that we wouldn't grow tired of hearing it, uh, wouldn't think we figured it all out, uh, but that we would be just as captivated by this story now as we were when we first became followers of Christ. Uh, as captivated by it now as we were when we first became aware um, of what it is that you sent your son to do for us. Thank you for this story that gives us hope, uh, that gives us forgiveness, uh, that gives us a future with you in eternity. We love you. We thank you for Jesus. We ask these things in his name. Amen. I'm going to pick up in Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 39. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, 
If these were silent, the very stones would cry out. So the first people we read about this morning are the party poopers, specifically some of the Pharisees. And some of the Pharisees aren't quite as hospitable as everyone else is. Specifically, they tell Jesus to rebuke his disciples, rebuke the crowd celebrating his arrival into Jerusalem. The Pharisees want them to be quiet. Now, maybe it's because the Pharisees thought that they were being overly obnoxious. Or maybe they thought they were being undignified in their celebration. But more likely, their concern is that they disagree with the content of their words. Verse 38, that verse that Mark read at the beginning of our worship service. Look at what they're saying. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, you can't really blame the Pharisees. They're sitting back and maybe they're just suggesting that, you know what? Those are bold claims to make. Those are pretty audacious words to say. Maybe we should cool our jets a little bit before we say things like that about Jesus. Maybe we should just relax a little bit before we say something with that kind of weight. The king who comes in the name of the Lord. You don't just say that about anybody. Let's just relax a little bit before we say that. But then don't read over the response that Jesus makes to those Pharisees, the ones being inhospitable. The response that he makes specifically about the stones crying out. That phrase, the stones would cry out. When Jesus says that the stones would cry out if the crowds, if the disciples were silent, he's affirming everything the disciples are saying about him. When he says that, he is owning the claims that the crowds make about him. He's clearly confirming that he really is the king that they claim him to be. He really is the king who has come in the name of the Lord. But not only that, when he says that the stones would cry out, he's harshly rebuking these Pharisees. Now, maybe you've heard that phrase, dumber than a box of rocks. Dumber than a box of rocks. Not something you should say on a regular basis, not the most polite thing in the world. But that's basically what Jesus is saying here to these Pharisees. He's saying that even rocks would have a better, more worshipful more theologically astute response and welcome to Jesus than these Pharisees have. In a sense, they are being dumber than a box of rocks. So, as I was preparing for this sermon, reading Luke chapter 19 through chapter 21, I picked up on something that I had never picked up before in reading these chapters. And if you read your Bible, you will do that. You will come across things that you never notice, no matter how many times you read it. And the thing that I picked up on in these chapters this week was how many times we see the word stones used in these chapters. The word stones is mentioned multiple more times over the next several passages, and we're going to see a few of them. And I don't know about you, but that's the kind of thing that I find fascinating. Why is it there? Why is it repeated over and over again? Well, let's think a little bit more about stones. So. I'd like to introduce you to someone. Uh, He's a new addition to our family. I don't normally bring pets on stage, but this is Papa. Uh, Javen named him Papa. And this is our new pet rock. So this is our new pet rock. 
Well, here's the thing. I've never owned a pet rock before. Uh, I don't know anything really about how to train. I don't really know anything about how to train him, uh, but luckily it did come with a manual. So uh, here are a few of the things that it suggests about training your pet rock. You may find that your pet rock is addicted to TV. You can put your pet rock next to you while you watch a movie or your favorite TV program. Most of them even sit through the commercials. Entertain your pet rock. It can be a good companion. You can talk to it, pet it, sing to it, or take it for a ride in your car. If your pet rock misbehaves in any way, it may need to be disciplined. Your pet rock responds well to bad pet rock, bad pet rock. Just like other pets, pet rocks like to go for exercise walks. Walking leashes are available. But be sure not to drown your pet rock. Watch out for puddles. So, this pet rock, if you're asking yourself, would he really buy a pet rock just for a sermon illustration? The answer is a resounding yes. I would. So, by now, you probably pick up on the fact that the pet rock, it's a gag gift. It's a joke. The whole point of the pet rock, the whole point of the joke, is that rocks, or stones, they're one of the most utterly lifeless things you could possibly think of. That's why they make great pets, right? Well, unfortunately, like my pet rock... Unfortunately, like the stones that the crowd was standing on as they welcomed Jesus, these Pharisees have shown themselves to be utterly lifeless. Their ongoing rejection of Jesus has shown just how hardened and cold and dead they truly are to the things of God. But it's not just the Pharisees that prove to be lifeless, like rocks. We see the same problem with the city of Jerusalem itself. Look at Luke 19, starting in verse 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every every side and tear you down to the ground. You and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone. There it is again. One stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. The son of God enters the city of Jerusalem, God's city. But then Jesus weeps over it. And he says that the city of God does not recognize the son of God when he rides in on a colt. That sounds pretty dead and cold and lifeless. But it's not just the city. Even the temple is lifeless. Look at verses 45 through 48. And Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. This place that was once filled with worship, that was once filled with prayer to God, is now nothing more than a market for robbers. That word can be translated bandits or rebels, maybe for our purposes today, crooks. 
That's what Jesus finds in the temple. Cold, dead, and lifeless. So once he gets past that initial welcome wagon, he finds hearts of stone, particularly within the religious leaders, the people who claim to know God's heart better than anybody else. I mean, look at chapter 20. All they do over and over and over again is give Jesus trouble. They question his authority. They try to trick him into saying something wrong. They try to confuse him with ridiculous and impractical theological riddles. That's why he warns his disciples not to admire men like them. At the end of chapter 20, he talks about how the Pharisees have long robes and official titles and impressive places at big public meals. But then he says, you know what? Don't admire them. Look to chapter 21, verses 1 through 4. Ignore the poor widow who doesn't have the title, who doesn't have the money, who doesn't have the long, impressive robes, who doesn't get invited to the fancy meals, but she loves God and she doesn't have a heart of stone. Be like her. So like we mentioned earlier, things seem to be getting darker and darker and darker in the gospel of Luke once you get past that celebration at the very beginning. Darker and darker and darker. The city of Jerusalem is filled with people who will ultimately reject Jesus. Presumably, many of those people who will reject Jesus are those who welcomed him at that big parade. The temple has been corrupted. The temple has been misused. The religious leaders are just as guilty, if not more so, than anybody else in the city. Darker and darker and darker. But as if that doesn't sound bad enough, it gets worse. Look at some of the words of Jesus in chapter 21, starting in verse 5. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be? And What will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, see that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am he and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified for these things must first take place. But the end will not be at once. More darkness as Jesus prophesies that the temple will be torn down that temple the glorious temple that solomon built so long ago the temple that ezra helped to rebuild after that first temple was destroyed the temple that we read about in psalm 84 all these beautiful words about this building how lovely is your dwelling place o lord of hosts my soul longs yes faints for the courts of the lord my heart and flesh sing for joy To the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars. O Lord of hosts, my king and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Jump forward to verse 10. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. 
For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. That temple. The one the psalmist sings so beautiful about. The place that was once considered God's dwelling place on earth. The place that at one time was filled with worship and prayer, that place is going to be torn down. Jesus says every last stone will fall. But that's not it. Chapter 21, verse 20. We read there. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. And let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Trampled underfoot like stones, like rocks. Not only does he prophesy that the temple will be destroyed, he prophesies that the city will fall. That city, Jerusalem. The one that God gave the Israelites so long ago after decades of wandering in the desert. The one they loved and cared about so much. The one we read about in Psalm 48, an entire psalm devoted to Jerusalem. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the great city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. For behold, the kings assembled. They came on together. As soon as they saw it, they were astounded. They were in panic. They took to flight. Trembling took hold of them there, anguish as of a woman in labor. By the east wind, you shattered the ships of Tarshish. As we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. As your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. Walk about Zion. Go around her. Number her towers. Consider well her ramparts. Go through her citadels that you may tell the next generation that this is God. Our God forever and ever. He will guide us forever. That city is going to fall. The one God gave them, the one they took such great pride and comfort and security in as a signal of God's blessing. If you were a Jewish person back then and you ever had any doubt that God loved you, that God cared for you, all you had to do is look around at the city. That was proof that God cared for you. That was proof that God loved you. That was proof that God was in power, that God was on the throne. But now Jesus says that city is going to fall. Every last stone will collapse. Now, the last time something this horrifying, something this tragic occurred 
to God's city, to God's people, to God's temple? You have to go way back to 586 B.C. when some people called Babylon came in. It's one of those dates that a Jewish person would have marked on their calendar at that time. One of those dates that every time of year it comes around, you get a little bit of a chill up your spine because it's still so haunting. It's so terrifying. Now, why would Jesus prophesy something like that? Something like another Babylon? Well, a good place to start is by asking why the first one happened so long ago. Prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel, they tell us why. Wickedness, idolatry, rebellion, injustice reigned supreme amongst God's people, even to the point of child sacrifice. Everyone was guilty, from the poor to the rich, from the common person to the royal, from the prophets to the priests. Everybody had a hand in that rebellion. And according to Jesus, the horror of 586 B.C., the horror of Babylon, it's about to happen again. The city will be destroyed. The temple will fall. God's people will be exiled, just like back then. But why? Why would this happen? Why would Jesus prophesy something like this? I mean, is punishment like this really warranted? Why would Jesus say things like that as he enters town? He's not really making any friends. He's not really doing himself any favors if he's trying to avoid trouble with the religious leaders. Is something like this really warranted? I mean, sure, the leaders haven't done their jobs. And no, they haven't had a whole lot of reverence for the temple, that's for sure. And yes, soon many of the same people who welcome Jesus into town are going to oppose him. But another Babylon? Have they really been that bad? Well, maybe not quite yet. But the religious leaders are about to commit the most wicked, rebellious, and unjust act that has ever been formulated by sinful man. And Jesus knows it's coming. Look to chapter 20, starting in verse 9, Gospel of Luke. And Jesus began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, 
it will crush him. You know, a lot of the parables of Jesus can be confusing, require a lot of thought, require a lot of reflection. This really isn't one of them. The religious leaders seem to be the tenants. God is the owner. Jerusalem is the vineyard. It's referred to as a vineyard many times in the Old Testament. It seems that God has entrusted the religious leaders with so much. He's entrusted them with his people, his city, his temple. But they have started a mutiny. It starts with the beatings of the servants. You could say those are the prophets. It ultimately ends with the killing of the son, Jesus. It's not a coincidence that in the parable, the son is thrown out of the vineyard and killed. In the same way, Jesus will die outside of the city. Ultimately, the religious leaders will reject the cornerstone. And as a result, Jesus says that they will be crushed. In spite of his warnings, they still reject him. Because they are cold, hardened, and lifeless, like stones. That's when things really begin to heat up. When they really began planning how to get rid of Jesus. Look at verse 19. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour. For they perceived that he had told this parable against them. But they feared the people. Darker and darker and darker. The story appears to get. Now, if you're Theophilus, remember him way back from chapter one. You're probably not sure whether you want to keep listening or turn away. I mean, he does already know that things are going to get worse before they get any better. He knows how the story ends. But at the same time, a story like this is kind of like a train wreck. You know it's horrible, but you just can't seem to take your eyes away. Now, the bad news of the story for people like us to consider is this. People like us have more in common with these religious leaders than we may have ever liked to admit. In our sin, we were once cold and hardened and lifeless, like stones, like they are. And we all know there's nothing a stone can do to give itself life. There's nothing any of us can do to give a stone life. You can grab paddles and put it on the stone, shock it. It's not going to come to life. You can try to give it CPR. It's not going to come to life. It's dead. It's cold. It's lifeless. And so for life to come to something or someone that is so utterly hard and cold and dead... It takes something that only God can do. But of course, the good news is this, that God has done and God can do just that. He can give life to cold, hardened, lifeless stones. In Ezekiel, he does it to dry bones out on a field. Dry bones laying around, baked by the sun, no life in them forever. But then God speaks, and the bones come to life. The same can be said of stones like us, sinners like us. But that life only happens through faith in Jesus Christ. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. Peter picks up on this imagery of stones. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, 
you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Sound familiar? And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We were once cold and hard and dead, but God breathed life into us. Because Jesus, the cornerstone, died for us on the cross. His blood shed, his body broken for idolatrous and rebellious and wicked and cold and hardened and lifeless rocks like us. And now that you know that you believe that, now that you know that God has called you to be one of his people, to be a part of his priesthood, you're now called to go out in the world and be bearers of light and life in a world full of darkness and death. That's the calling that he's given to us. It's the mission and the joy that he's given to us. So this morning, if you're already a follower of Jesus, maybe the thing that you leave with is this. Rejoice that you've been brought to life by God's grace. You didn't bring yourself to life. Nobody else around you brought you to life. God and his grace brought you to life. And if you're not a follower of Christ, if you don't believe this stuff yet, I pray that you would place your faith in him this morning. That you would repent of your sin. That you would be born again to life instead of death. Don't leave this morning having rejected the cornerstone that died for you. Leave here alive and looking forward to a future and an eternity with God. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful that you bring us to life. You know, it's easy sometimes for us to look at the religious leaders, to look at the people of Jerusalem and and to think, my gosh, what were these people thinking? Why would they reject Jesus? All these miracles, all these things they saw right in front of their very eyes. I mean, how could they be that dumb? But God, we too once rejected Jesus. We too once had no interest in Jesus. We too were once utterly lifeless. And yet you and your grace forgave us. You and your grace, you've saved us. And you've given us this incredible, glorious calling to go out into the world and be bearers of life. Father, I pray that as we leave here this morning, that we would do that. That we would point people to your son, the cornerstone, who died for us. Thank you for his broken body and his shed blood. Thank you that you've called us together to be 
a holy nation, a royal priesthood. I pray that by your grace and by the power of your spirit and with the guidance of your word that we would fulfill that calling well. We love you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Again, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, I pray that you would make that decision this morning. Talk to one of our elders. They'll be standing at the sides of the room. They'd be happy to pray with you, happy to talk with you, happy to answer your questions. And also, we have our lunch immediately following this service. So if you can help, if you're going to stay, uh, help us move some chairs out of the way, bring out tables. We'd greatly appreciate it. And also, don't forget that we have another meal tonight at 530 for our bracket challenge. So we hope that you'll stay for lunch or dinner or both. And we're grateful that you're here this morning.